Hello and welcome to Yeah Podcast, yet another Final Fantasy podcast. And today we are tackling Season 4, Episode 13, which is the last episode in the playthrough of the season, right? So there's going to be only one more episode next next episode that's going to kind of go through the entire game and my feelings about it. But this, this is it. This is the end of the game. So in the last episode, and oh, I should mention the title of the, the episode, it's a uh, Lunar Subterranean. And just a quick heads up, I usually follow the strategy wiki for my episode listing, because they usually uh, break down games by quests, even if there are no explicit quests, but they break them down section by section. I just didn't entirely agree with the last two uh, breakdowns. And now that I'm looking back at ho- just how long um, my uh, notes are for this section. I probably should have broken it down. It's it's just a really weird thing. It's, you know, huge cave, and then, like, the final bo- boss gets its own chapter. No, doesn't necessarily need to. Anyway, so I definitely put these two together, and we are, well, we are in the Lunar Subterranean in this episode. So in the last episode, we defeated the Giant of Babel, and he, we destroyed the CPU, and we saw Golbaz and Fusoya, Golbaz, who is now known as Cecil's brother, uh, Golbaz and Fusoya fly off to the moon by themselves because they've got so much more, I guess, magic, right? That they can, like, just fly to the moon without a spaceship. That is just amazing. I want to be able to do that. Uh, so they fly off so that they can go defeat the ultimate villain of this game, Zemus. And just like in many of the other previous Final Fantasy games, you don't actually find out about the ultimate villain, um, until like very late in the game, right? Like in in Final Fantasy II, the ultimate villain end up being like the the demon version of the Emperor. I mean, you've always been fighting against the Emperor, but like the demon version of the Emperor and Hell was not something in mind when when playing that game. In Final Fantasy III, we found out about the, the third magician who got mortality and stopped the world only like two thirds way through the game or something like that. And then then actually all the way at the end of that game, uh, at the end of the second to last quest in Final Fantasy III, we finally found out, oh, hey, like, it's the, it's this, I don't know, evil being that was controlling or at least manipulating and encouraging uh, the the magician. So in this game, it's the same thing. We found out about Zemus last episode or the two episodes ago, and now we're going to, that that's, that's our enemy now. Uh, so... Enough with the recap. Um, let me just go ahead and say that I went ahead and took the time to finish all of the side quests in this game. I 100%ed this game. I mean, I 100%ed it to the 100%, meaning that I did all of the side quests, every single one. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm going to beat the game, but I also 100%ed every single map in the game. I went through every single cave and got 100% of the coverage for each and every single cave in the game. I thought there might be like a, you know, one of the Steam reward, not rewards, but like achievements for it. Maybe I missed one of them. I know that I kind of ran through the mist cave in the, the beginning of the game and I probably could have come come back, but well, I can't come back now. Like there's, I just, I can't come back. Well, that's kind of sad. I wish I had remembered that, but I, I think I did come back at some point. It'd be weird if I didn't 100% it. But that's the only one that I can think of not 100%ing or there's no achievement in the end. Or maybe I just missed, missed the achievement. Anyway, back to the game. So I ended up going back to the blacksmith who's in the underworld. Uh, he uh, finally finished building the Excalibur for me, which is supposed to be Cecil's strongest weapon, which I think it's replaced in just a few 
like, I don't know, like an hour of gameplay. Uh, not a big deal. But yeah, so that's the most, that's the strongest uh, weapon. You can also buy the stronger shuriken type uh, weapons here. So Edge throws shurikens usually, but in this section of the game, there's, there's like an upgraded shuriken that does way more damage, but it's also way more expensive. So just to kind of compare it, the regular shuriken does 50 damage plus the throw. So I don't, I don't actually know the calculation there, but the upgraded shuriken, and I can't remember the name of it, I think it started with a, an F, like a Fuyoma or Fuyo Shuriken or something like that. I'm sorry if I'm like butchering it. That Shuriken did 200 base damage. And just to kind of to compare it, Bahamut's or Bahamut, yeah, Bahamut's attack is 200. I think it's 200. Uh, the Leviathan is 200. And I think Bahamut is 250. So this is the scale of a high level summon. It's amazing. And this guy sells it. The problem is it's like 50,000 per shuriken, right? So like a regular shuriken is 5,500 and you can stock up on 99 of those very easily, right? Like 99 of those is technically, what? Um, divide by two. It's, yeah, so it's basically one one of these super strong shurikens is the price of 100 of the lower uh, grade shurikens. So that was kind of cool. Um, it was really nice to see this, you know, this... Uh, blacksmith who's kind of burnt out and, and not really knowing what else to do in his life be excited again because he rebuilt this weapon for cecil and he rebuilt it from his old dark knight sword and so it's a sword that you i guess carry around the entire time i didn't even realize that i'm guessing it's also not sellable so you know that that might have something to do with it uh, i ended up then flying back to the moon with my little spaceship and you can move freely around the world now and this is kind of the section of the game that hasn't the, the point of no return uh essentially once you go through the next cave you're done and you can't come back to anything else so you can explore the entire world everything's open to you you have like six different airships that you can use and actually that you have to use so fun fact you can't fly with the spaceship into the underworld you have to land it pick up your old ship fly that to the underworld and then you have to sw it's it's kind of i don't really like that you have to do that but it's also understandable and it's a mechanic that was in final fantasy 3 as well where you had the super fast ship that could go against winds and you had to switch that ship if you wanted to enter specific areas that had high winds that your regular other ships couldn't reach. So I flew to the moon and I went to the uh, Bahamut's cave. I knew it was Bahamut's cave because it was the only other cave other than the ending cave. So I went in there and I remember it was so difficult to fight it before the Giant of Babel because I tried to go there. And uh, this time around, it was fairly easy. I don't remember any of the enemies in the caves. Um, this is a trend that I think I've been following for the past four games. The enemies in this game, even some of the bosses are very easy to forget, especially their names. It's not like Pokemon where you remember that there was, you know, Blue who you fought at the second gym in the second game in the post-game content. Like, you remember all these different details uh, or, you know, that you can catch, you know, Pikachu in the Viridian Forest. I remember all these amazing details about... Uh, well, I think that's that's only it's red and blue. I can yeah, whatever. You remember all these like different details about the Pokemon games in the Final Fantasy games. I found that it's a lot harder to remember any enemies other than like I remember the the evil door right, like the evil doors that I had to fight in two episodes ago when I was descending down. Where was I going? Yeah, I don't even remember. Whatever. Um, but you know, I remember those enemies. But in, I'm just seeing that in these games, the the enemies aren't unique enough that you remember them, most of them at least. And I'll mention a few enemies in this episode that I thought were kind of fun. So upon de descending to Bahamut's cave, we actually find an Eidolon shrine. In fact, we see like two Eidolon 
people from Fey March. They are standing around the shrine, and it's at the bottom of the cave, and it's like this outcropping, and it has uh, outcropping like in the emptiness of the cave. Like one thing this game does a lot is whenever you're standing, whenever you're at a specific level. Um, Everything else seems to be like this huge cave that it's suspended in the middle of. It's it's kind of a weird feeling of like you're floating on these platforms. Um, I don't know. It, that's most of the caves in Final Fantasy uh, 4 in the 3D version. So in this one, you have this beautiful shrine that's kind of like just floating above there. Like I said, there were a couple of Eidolons from Feymarch. There's also a friend of Rydia's there. And uh, she tells him, hey, everybody in Eidolon City in Feymarch... Uh, is missing you, and that character then leaves and goes back. And what's fun is that this character, I think it's the same one that comes back all the way at the end of this game, right before the credits. Not an important character, he just comes up. Uh, They just come up. I have no idea what their gender is, actually, or their pronouns. Yeah, so once you talk to all the different people before uh, walking up onto the platform of the shrine where the Eidolon is at, you find out that Bahamut is the father of Eidolons. So he's uh, a worshipped, loved entity, um, which is kind of interesting. Again, it gives you more of a backstory of how Eidolons are. And when you walk up to the platform, you know, you're expecting a dragon or a dragon to accost you all of a sudden, right? Like for Bahamut to attack you. Instead, you meet a person and it's the same deal as other uh, Eidolons. It's a person that can transform into a dragon. And they've kind of solidified the lore now where you the Eidolons that you summon are Eidolons that have like pledged their help to you. And you're also your own Eidolon. So I think Rydia's Eidolon is the dragon. And that's not her mother that she's summoning. That's her. Like, she, I think, like, inherited that form. Uh, the same way you have Leviathan, who's actually the king of Eidolons. It's not that he can summon an, a Leviathan. It's that he is the Leviathan. And so this character that you talk to is uh, Bahamut. I don't know. I'm trying to, like, untangle the the lore of this game. It's just kind of interesting because the summoners and Eidolons, and it's not very explained in most of the games as to, like, how come you can summon them. How come you can summon Leviathan or Bahamut from Final Fantasy III where they're just like regular monsters and you defeat them. I don't remember them saying that. Maybe they said that they're, oh, we'll get summoned whenever you say so. But it's like a weird, you know, why are these monsters doing it? In this case, it kind of makes sense. It's Eidolons really just summoning each other, which kind of gives this rise to the idea that there must be somewhere in Ifrit, Shiva, and Bahamur, uh, Bahamur? I don't know. People that became those Eidolons, right? And we also know that we can summon Eidolons, I guess, from the dead because we can summon Odin, and the uh, the Eidolon that, can, that that becomes Odin is the king of Baron, the original one, and he's dead. So I don't know. Maybe the dragon is Rydia's like mom that she's summoning. Then who is she? What kind of a Eidolon is Rydia? I just figured that she was the dragon itself. Maybe I'll just make that canon in my head. Anyway, so then we fight Bahamut. I found out that I'm over leveled. I have a colleague that started pl- that played through Final Fantasy IV, so we could talk about it, and he kind of sped through it, and he's like, man, these battles were really hard, and I played against Bahamut, and I looked at the strategy wiki, and I didn't need to use much of the strategy from anywhere, because I just, it was like two rounds, and Bahamut was dead. That kind of sets us up for the rest of the game, because if it is really that easy, that means that the rest of the game is going to be pretty easy, and it kind of was, but I want to read to you the notes from the beginning of the next plot. So we, I got Bahamut. He's a summonable monster. There is one more slot that that shows up in the menu. So usually, um, 
Like, whenever you have spells or summons or anything like that, you have a three-column menu where you have, you know, three spells per row or three summons per row. Uh, with Black Magic, I ended up getting Rydia to have full... Like, the, the menu is completely full and the last spell is like Meteor or something like that. It's the final last spell that she can ever learn. Um, with Eidolons, there's one more spot left, so I'm wondering if I missed something or or why this is the case. Anyway, so I ended up getting out of the cave as soon as I got Bahamut. There wasn't really much anything else to do, and I went to the Crystal Palace. Now, I want to kind of remind you listeners about Final Fantasy III's setup for the end. Uh, if you wanted to go to the final main area, you had to first go through two smaller areas, like two smaller caves. So the distance from the actual ending of the cave, right, all the way to a point where you can fly off with your ship, right, like the distance between those two is actually a lot of area to cover. You have to go through two different underpasses. So you have to land, you have to go through two different underpasses, then you go into the Crystal Palace, and from the Crystal Palace, you go into the Lunar Subterranean, the cave. So it's, it's actually a very long trek if you want to go restock on items. Um, or if you want to go save in an inn, or not save in it, but like recharge in an inn. Luckily we have cottages and everything else, but it's kind of interesting that if you do want to, uh, fill up on shurikens for edge, which is bound to happen at least once, you have to really go for a long trek back. Uh, as soon as I hit the Lunar Subterranean, there are a few things to, uh, to mention about this this cave. It is very maze-like. It is actually very tough, and this is what I wrote in my notes, that it's tough and there are hard en enemies. By the end of this cave, you're going to feel like it's easy because it's you level up against these hard enemies and then they don't really change. They don't, they don't drastically change over the course of the eight, 10 levels that you have to descend. And so, I mean, you kind of add a few difficult enemies, but it's just not so hard that, I don't know. But again, like I talked to my colleague who played this game as well and he ran, you know, sped through the game and he had a really hard time in this game. He's like, oh, I made like five trips. I made two trips or like, I made more than two trips, but the ones after the second one were accidental, so to speak. So let me talk about what you find in this game. Uh, you get the end game <laughs> weapons the same way as any, any of the other games. And this game also follows the convention that was started in Final Fantasy III where the strongest weapons, which are Murasame, which is one of the swords, Masamune, which made a comeback, and it's another sword, Ragnarok, which is uh, Cecil's strongest sword, so it's not the Excalibur, uh, they all are in these tiny mini shrines, and whenever you activate them so you can take the weapon, you get attacked by a monster. And so you fight... Uh, quite a few different monsters that I can't remember. Uh, one of them was Dark Bahamut. He was guarding the the Ragnarok. So it's like Bahamut, but stronger. And outside of that, there was, a, I think there was the Wyvern. Was that one of the bosses? And I don't know, just a few different bosses that you got to fight in order to get the weapons. And I actually like this idea of having these mini bosses and having endgame weapons that are available to you. I kind of wish that they were available earlier, but I wonder if that would make this cave less special if they, if it didn't have this content that you look forward to. I think about like Fable, right? Like one thing about Fable is that you get to, um, I, I know I keep comparing Fable and Pokemon to Final Fantasy. I know it's a weird comparison, 
But hey, you know, Fable is a Western RPG, I guess, that I very much enjoyed, and I understand that it clashes with JRPG elements. In that game, though, after you beat the final boss, you can get your final weapon, which felt weird. It felt weird to have the strongest weapon only after you finished the game, essentially. Oh, look, I have this enormously powerful weapon that I can use on low-level enemies because that's all I'm going to face from now on. They had DLC content, like they had a expansion pack. Was that what it was called back then? The Game of the Year edition game, whatever, uh, on Xbox had the expansion built in. The Lost Chapters, and it was a brand new, extremely difficult area that you could explore with your brand new sword. And I don't know if it ever got replaced. Like, I think you got stronger everything else except for that sword. And so you got to use the sword against very difficult enemies and eventually against a brand new endgame boss. That's great. So in this game, you got to use these weapons so that as you went down the cave and gather these weapons, the cave got easier. We also got a bunch of different armors. We got the dragon armor for the dragoon. We got the crystal armor, which went to uh, Cecil, I think. And then you have the Genji armor that went to Edge. So you had their ultimate armors. You also had, uh, you also fought the Lunasaur, Lunasaur, which is like a dragon on the moon. That, that makes sense. It's a lunar dragon and uh defeating defeating that enemy got uh yielded two ribbons and ribbons um i think are the uh, the items that uh make it make sure that you don't get status effects right so we got all of these different weapons all of this different new armor i was so happy to fight uh dark bahamut and then i got lost i wanted to 100 the map but i got lost when I, on my way to find ragnarok uh, I, I will say this is one of the few times in the entire game that i had to like look up a youtube video so i could understand how to get to this last part and really it was a an invisible bridge between two stone areas and when i had first tried to walk over that invisible bridge earlier in the game i i guess accidentally ran more into the side than onto the bridge and so i thought that this was like kind of a fake out that you, you would have to get there somewhere else so i moved just a little bit over so i could cross the bridge and and, and win and everything so because i over leveled i ended up or because i got lost i ended up over leveling insanely over leveling i mean i could press auto battle battle which in this game in the 3d version um it doesn't copy the last attack you did it just does a regular attack see there's no strategy behind it everybody attacks and so i had rosa uh, I had Rosa shooting 5,000 damage arrows. I had Cecil doing like 4,000 to 8,000 damage with his sword. I had, you know, uh, Kane doing four to 5,000 damage. I had Edge sometimes, uh, sometimes going 2,500 damage and sometimes going like 7,000 damage depending on the day, right? And <laughs> I even had Rydia with her whip doing like 2,000, 3,000 damage and paralyzing the enemy. So I ended up running into these really strong monsters and just killing them by pressing x and walking away to get a coffee i like i literally i saw i'm like this is a boss not a boss but there's like this big beast thing that does a lot of strong attacks and has a ton of uh hp i would just press x or the square on my playstation controller yeah i got a brand new controller to play this game i would press it and i would walk away and by the time i come back my party won and they you know they got maybe two three thousand damage among all of them all together and that wasn't a big deal at this point i did end up uh teleporting out once or twice actually uh once because i was tired and i'm like i don't want to play right now i'm gonna go ahead and teleport out and do like a regular save and exit out of the game that was when i first approached the cave and then i teleported the second time when i found out that the really big 
expensive shuriken were available for sale. So I didn't know about it. And one of them, like, again, one of my colleagues said, hey, like, oh yeah, you can get those at the blacksmith. And I'm like, what? And so I ended up teleporting out so I could get a bunch of those super powerful shuriken, which basically maxed out uh, Edge's damage. He would do 10,000 and nothing more, right? Unless this game just shows you 9,999 and does more damage, but I don't think that's the case. I really think that the max is 10,000, so he was just hitting 10,000 at that point. Once you go through the subterranean, you actually find yourself in the Crystal... What was it? The Crystal Palace again, I guess? I don't remember the name of that area. And so in this area, you had like these glass floors where you can walk and you had some interesting enemies here as well. One of them was this electronic head that would like shoot you with its laser and it had a really interesting mechanic where it would cast reflect on itself and reflect on you. Now, here's an interesting point about reflect. Reflect will reflect only once. So like an, a spell that gets reflected will get reflected only once. That means that he would cast reflect on me and then on you and or on me and on itself. And when it cast the reflect on me, that meant that I couldn't heal myself conventionally. I couldn't cast heal because that would get reflected to the talking head. And the talking head would then ref cast reflect on itself so that it's protected from my attacks. And then it would cast attacks on itself that get reflected out. Because if he if the head attacked me directly, my reflect would reflect it back on it on 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 the head. So it was an interesting tactic, and I, I lost to it like maybe once, and then I realized that the gimmick is to uh, cast Shell on yourself. And for some reason, the character no longer tries to cast Reflect on your party, and that makes it so much easier because physical attacks go through Reflect, and Bahamut goes through Reflect. Bahamut costs 99 MP, so it's not a cheap spell, but it will go through all these different en enchantments, which is awesome. And I ended up defeating him and defeating that monster and, you know, no biggie. And in the end, I finally got to where Golbez and Fasoya was fighting Zemus. We go into, we go into like a battle screen and we see Golbez and Fasoya attack Zemus with all these different spells. A Zemus is this interesting white or sometimes green, depending on the cutscene, eyed demon. So it's like this just tall demon looking thing. Uh, Golbez and Fusoya are super underleveled in comparison to any of my characters and they defeat him. They cast all kinds of spells. Some of them have no effect. And I wonder if that was a way to kind of hint to the player that, hey, if you use these spells, they're not going to have any effect. And I kind of like that idea of like a cutscene giving us hints of, that will make the battle easier. Uh, so everybody's celebrating, then obviously Zemus is going to get up because we didn't go through this really long dungeon just for somebody else to kill Zemus. So Zemus gets up, transforms into what he calls the wellspring of darkness fed by Zemus's unbridled hate, the Zeromus. So the death made Zemus stronger. Like, he was dead and that made him so angry that he was dead that Zeramus just became extremely powerful. Golbez and Fusoya fight Zeramus again, but Zeramus looks... Well, Zeramus does kind of look weird. Uh, and seems like black magic doesn't, doesn't affect Zeramus at all. So it's supposed to be that, look, I'm so dark that any of your darkness is not going to do anything to me. Now, Golbez has a crystal for some reason. Uh, I want to mention that there are so many crystals in this game, right? Like there were supposed to be eight on Earth, but then Lunar Whale, the spaceship has its own. And when you go through the Crystal Palace at the beginning of this cave, you go through like another eight crystals. And then you have, you know, Golbez holding up a random crystal. That's, I don't know. 
It's it's kind of weird. Anyway, so the crystal won't work because Gobez still has evil within him. It turns out, basically, Cecil went through the cleansing ritual of going up Mount Ordeals, and they don't explain that, but, you know, that's what the story is. And Gobez hasn't. Gobez was evil the whole time somehow. Uh, it's, it's weird because Gobez was the one that was actually, you know, being controlled and manipulated. Cecil, like, Cecil was manipulated, but he fought, like, for the king and... Didn't really question it until after killing a bunch of people. Um, Gobez and Fusoya die in their fight, and everybody else dies. And then the crystal, well, the, yeah, everybody basically dies. We then cut to, this is a long cutscene. <laughs> we cut to the crystal on top of the Mycidian power of prayer. So, okay, okay, I guess there's another crystal to keep in mind. And it shines, and there are Cecil's friends praying to the crystal, so he gains his strength. This is really an interesting idea, I guess. Um, all the characters are alive, and basically anybody important to Cecil is on that tower and praying for him. They pray to the moon. Uh, back on the moon, Golbass is on the ground, and he reaches out and hands Cecil the crystal, who's also on in, in the ground, and he says, it must be you. Well, obviously, because Cecil's the I guess he's he fulfills the prophecy, which again it's kind of weird to like hear about this prophecy halfway three quarter you know two thirds way through the game, when it feels like it should be front and center maybe not half. All right, whatever. It was maybe a little bit earlier. I, I forgot how quickly Cecil becomes a paladin. We go to the battle screen. Uh, Palam and Poram show up, and they their p prayers make everybody alive. Cecil was or already alive with one HP, but you know you have <laughs> Zaroma. Zeromus, Zeromus on one side, you have our party on the other side, and so, like, Palam and Purim just kind of show up from nowhere, and their prayers make everyone alive. Then Edward and Tella show up. I thought Tella was dead, and, and he is dead, so I guess it's his spirit? I don't know. Uh, their p prayers bestow strength, as they say, which means that, like, two characters get healed, then uh, Yang and Sid, and it's Yang, not Yang, as I've been saying, uh, they bestow more vitality, they heal several of them, and then Fusoyan and Golbez pray life to Cecil. Then the real battle starts. Well, actually, it's one of those fake-out battles where you, you're you not actually, like, battling. The battle doesn't, doesn't start until you do a certain action. You have the battle screens, you, you can cast the attacks, nothing happens. What you need to actually do is use the crystal that's in your inventory now as Cecil. Uh, when you do that, Zeromus transforms into yet another monster, and this one was like, I think like a big fleshy looking head, I think. Um, you can fight against that character, and it ends up being a very fun battle, kind of short one. Uh, I had Kane jumping constantly, I had Edge using all of those really expensive 50,000 gil shurikens, which was awesome. <laughs> I mean, that was just constantly 10,000 damage, and I knew that Zeromus, I looked it up, Zeromus had 150,000 HP, so it was like, okay, so this is 15 turns with just Edge alone, and on top of that, I had Rydia, um, Zeromus kept casting Osmos to get rid of her MP, but because I was so overleveled, I had a ton of MP, and I unfortunately couldn't cast Osmos back. That's something to keep in mind. So she was casting like Bahamut and these really strong spells. Rosa was casting Kiraja every single time. That's the one with the J, not the G. And you had Cecil attacking, but most of the time he was doing like shell. He was doing support work, so it was mostly Edge and Kane attacking. I hope, hopefully I'm not uh, forgetting anybody. And Rydia, of course, sometimes attacking. So it's kind of interesting that like in my party setup, Cecil wasn't the one doing the most damage and Cecil wasn't the one who was really destroying this enemy. I had Edge die once, I revived him and he stayed alive for the rest of the fight. So again, this was actually 
a fun battle and it wasn't really hard. I found I had more trouble with uh, some of the secondary bosses for the weapons, but that just kind of happens. In the way I play this game, because I 100% every single map and try to get every single treasure, I never run away. I hate running away from battles because I it, it feels like the enemy gets a hit on me without me gaining anything for it. So we come out of the battle and we get a whole speech about balance. There will always be darkness and lightness. I'm going to go ahead and, or darkness and light. I'm going to go ahead and say I totally disagree with this philosophy. I don't think that there needs to be evil in the world for there to be good. I think that's a totally backward and, and crappy idea. I think that justifies the evil existing. For example, in their whole world, did there really need to be uh, Zemus and Golbet, or like Zemus trying to destroy the world? No. That's just like one psychopath, right? That's one sociopath trying to destroy everybody. Uh, Golbez wasn't really like evil at all, if you think about it. Uh, Cecil was evil to the point where, well, it was evil because of the fact that he was loyal to his kingdom. I think that is an evil, and I think that Cecil going up Mount Ordeals doesn't bring back any of the lives that he destroyed. Golbez, again, I understand a little bit more. Golbez was actually controlled, not manipulated or asked to do orders and feeling like he has to follow them. He was literally magically, you know, being controlled. So Fusuya decides to go back to sleep with the other Lunarians. You know, Zemus is de destroyed. There's no reason to uh, worry about anything. Uh, we see Golbez ask Fusuya if he could join him. Uh, he cannot return. He basically says, I can't return back to the earth after what he's done. And he also wants, wants to meet his father's people. I think that is the only positive ending we can really expect for Golbez. Again, I do believe that because he was manipulated and because he was magically controlled, you can't say he's responsible for his actions, right? Like Cecil wasn't magically controlled. Golbez was. But also, like, even if people understand that, it's really hard to look at somebody who has destroyed and killed so many people, even under the influence of somebody else and accept them back. Like, Golbez doesn't doesn't really have a place on the planet, and it makes sense for him to go meet his father's peoples. Like, I I don't, like, I can't imagine being in that real-world situation, and obviously it's hard to even understand or believe somebody when they say they've been controlled, so it's like, it really makes it easier for people to be like, okay, so Golbez is gone forever, Golbez was defeated, uh, Golbez will never return. People can accept that more than, oh, Golbez was actually controlled by somebody else. It wasn't his fault at all, right? Like, people don't really believe that, uh, which I don't understand why they believe that about Cecil, right? Like, that's a that's a weird one. Uh, and then Fusoya disappears, and people give Cecil a hard time for not calling after his brother. His brother, like, you know, Golbez said, like, bye, I, you know, I'm, I'll see you later. Finally, like, Cecil in the last second says, you know, farewell, brother, and Golbez turns to uh, Cecil, and he bec becomes what he looked like as Theodore. Now, Theodore, I want to kind of put this in a weird comparison, kind of looks like Naruto. <laughs> the character has, like, a, go uh, the, a metal headband, like a shinobi from naruto and he has purple eyes but the purple eyes look a lot like naruto's red fox eyes and he looks like he has the whiskers <laughs> i know the characters are sometimes drawn that way in anime but it's just really funny because i'm like oh this is like a recolored naruto with different color hair different color eyes but essentially the same character Golbaz then disappears and we are on like mark 34 minutes of the original um recording of this episode so you can see how long this gets all the way at the end it's mainly like these cutscenes that it takes a really long time to get through um yeah so Golbez disappears we get a recap of the prophecy and a beautiful view of the planet uh it's really nice and it's like okay well the the, the whole game was about this prophecy that's an awesome idea you return to earth and kind of see like what happened with life 
um, after this journey. Again, just like in Final Fantasy 2 and I guess 3, uh, this isn't like a time loop, so everybody remembers what happens and we actually benefit from the adventure. We see Porum uh, taking a lesson with Palum um, and they're being like silly in Mycidia, so Mycidia is a city that's flourishing now. It's back to flourishing, so our actions within the game have made this difference. We see Edge takes over as the king of his, I don't know the name of it, whatever, the name of his uh, kingdom. Was it, uh, I think it started with a B. I don't remember. I don't remember. So yeah, Edge takes over. Um, he kind of confesses that he's in love with Rydia and has been struggling to basically be a king because he's really into her. Uh, it's really weird because I kind of didn't really see that in this game and they don't really have much interaction. And I'm kind of happy that they don't. I think Rydia is actually one of my favorite characters in this entire series. I, let me let me go back to the, the story. We then get a cutscene of Rydia. She returned back to Feymarch. Um, I think she's basically going to become the next queen of Feymarch after uh, Leviathan and Asura. Uh, she also meets that character that I said that we saw in Bahamut's cave. And the character says, like, oh, no, I have, like, these teeth growing. Why can't I look just like a normal person? So it kind of goes to the idea that... Eidolons are the monsters themselves, and as, as well as people. Obviously, Rydia is a very, like, compassionate character, so she says that, you know, teeth are no, no teeth, we're all Eidolon, we're all, you know, awesome people, I guess. Uh, we cut to Yang. Yang became king. Yang's wife is a queen, but she can't stand the prim and proper stuff, so she's, like, a really off-the-chain <laughs> queen. Uh, good for her, you know? I don't think you need to get stuck in the standards of king and queen and try to be all prim and proper, especially in a most likely sexist society as, you know, this is a kind of medievalish fantasy world. And we've only seen basically kings control any of the kingdoms, unlike in Final Fantasy 2, where we have a queen who takes back her kingdom of Finn uh, and then marries a random soldier who shouldn't really have any power. And he doesn't doesn't feel like he does. Okay, back to Final Fantasy IV. Uh, we also see Edward get, Edward is back in his destroyed kingdom and castle. It looks like he's very popular. Kids like him, and it sounds like he made a song about the journey of the paladin. So now Cecil's story became a bard's tale. Uh, he also m mentions that he still misses Anna. Um, this is an interesting point as well. Like this is his entire arc, and it, tr it, it while a lot of the other characters got to face and change things in their lives that were difficult, you know. Obviously, Iridia found her new home in the Fey March, and then she became a very strong character after feeling weak. We have uh, Young become the king. Young went from being like a master martial artist to and he gets back, right? Like, he gets to meet, uh, he gets to stay with his wife. We see, you know, all these different characters kind of advance in their plot, whereas Edward is still kind of stuck in the same place. And it's also a place that I want to remind everybody when Anna died, or Anna died, everybody gave Edward a hard time, just like a couple minutes later, for still being upset about her. Like, he's her, her dead body is still warm. It probably still twitches or something. He's, like, holding, I don't know. It was so bad, and nobody really talks about it. it. It's a sad moment for the character, for sure. We see the dwarves are rebuilding a castle. They find out that they ran out of materials, and they decide to scrap all the tanks for materials. This is like a little signal to, a little nod to the, the above world and underworld peace that we're going to see. That's an interesting part. Um, they also, I want to say that they, the Golbez or whoever it was talking about the balance of light and darkness also talked about the 
I think it was for Soy actually, about the above world and underworld. And it's really weird, the light and darkness. You don't have to have an underworld. The underworld is not evil. They seem to be nicer people than the above world. So I don't really see, uh, it's a bad comparison. I'm, I'm not, mm -mm, no. I guess Rosa, was Rosa King of Baron's daughter? I don't, was she a princess? I guess she was a princess. And then obviously Cecil was um, a high-ranking general in the military, but also like the world hero. And uh, the King of Baron kind of took him as his own son uh, in a way. So it kind of made sense. They got married uh, or they are about to get married. We see uh, Cain is on the mountain of Mount Ordeals and besides decides to stay there. He says that he plans to return. Uh, once he becomes better, a, a better dragoon, I guess. Um, it, it's also, it's still a little bit weird. I guess he feels so bad about the things that he's done. Again, like, it's, Cecil did so much worse. Like, I understand that Kane did a bunch of stuff under Golbass, but there was direct mind control. I'm gonna keep coming back to this. He did, you know, he had direct mind control that was making him do things that he did not want to do. Anytime the mind control loosened, Kane went to help immediately. He helped defeat the big big enemy like Zemus or Zeramus, Zeramus, whatever. Ah, just, it's weird. It's weird. He obviously feels really guilty and it's obvious that Cecil does not. We see, we get to a cutscene where there are two astronomers looking at the, at the moon. There are two full-sized moons. I think in the past there were always like one full-size, one smaller, but there are two full-sized moons. Uh, that might've been my imagination. Uh, we cut to Cecil and Rosa in Baron. And Cecil thinks that he heard Golbez's voice. So I guess it's supposed to be like a feel-good, good ending ending where Cecil's just like, oh, my brother still loves me or something. We see that Sid is still a baron and then Cecil and Rosa get married and become a king and a queen. All their friends came. Edge was really awkward about Rydia because he likes her. Rydia is just her usual awesome self. And finally, Sid, for some reason, Sid, coronates Cecil and everyone cheers and that's kind of the end of the game oh that was a long game long episode it makes me almost want to cut it here and do my final thoughts in the la in the next episode which I will but like I want to kind of talk about this chapter a little bit um, there was a lot of cutscenes it was interesting that the final boss battle seems to be was so much easier in this in this game so in the first second and this game the final boss battles end up being a lot easier than uh, some of the uh, minor bosses that we fight leading up to the final battle usually because the those minor bosses have some sort of gimmick that's really hard to counter and i'm really realizing i'm realizing this as i listen to re-listen to and edit all the different episodes that this is kind of like a trend they're following and the reason i'm leaving out Final Fantasy 3 is because Final Fantasy 3's boss was ridiculously difficult. Like, so ridiculously difficult that you could easily defeat all of the other sub-bosses without gaining a lot of damage and still have a hard time with the final boss. It was... It was, it was, it was really hard. Whereas in Final Fantasy 2, I had a hard time with, like, one of the angel sub-bosses that you fought before the Emperor. It is weird that Sid coronates Cecil. I don't really understand what his point is there. I kind of wish Kane wasn't so hard on himself. I wasn't a big fan of him, but he seemed to be a much more positive character than Cecil, even before um, they both left, before they both left the, the kingdom. I mean, Kane essentially volunteered his life to save Cecil, because uh, after the King of Baron exiled Cecil all the way at the beginning of the game, Kane was also the one who wanted to test Cecil and make sure that he was a good character, otherwise he would have to kill him. Like, Kane was the original protector while Cecil was just figuring stuff out for himself. 
And it's just really weird to see him be so hard on himself and then Cecil be celebrated as a king. He killed so many people in Mycidia. Like, we can't ignore, like, we can't really ignore these things. Like, he was, I understand he became a paladin and did a bunch of positive stuff. It's just like, it's weird to see one character being condemned for way, way less. Something that's not their fault, whereas Cecil willingly obeyed the King of Baron when he was corrupted. I'm gonna keep coming back to this. I can't imagine not coming back to this. But yeah, I think we're gonna cut it here. Thank you for listening. The next episode will be a nice little recap of what I thought of Final Fantasy IV, what the plot was, what the plot holes were. I'm gonna hopefully remember to mention that we never found out why the King of Baron uh, exiled Cecilia, Cecil's mother, uh, you know, we talked about that in the last episode. We never found out why that happened. And as far as I can, I can tell that's not really answered in the after years either. At least nobody that I talked to could tell me that this was like a big plot point or something. So, oh well. Um, yeah, if you want to, you can follow me on Twitter on twitter.com slash yafpodcast. You can like, subscribe, share, tell people about this podcast, and hopefully stay on and, and listen to the next episode.